Welcome to Theology for the People. I recently received this question through the online form on my website, nickkady.org, which is the Theology for the People blog site. Someone asked me, why does God judge some people more harshly than others? For example, in the Bible, we see that some people who do evil things get punished harshly by God, but other people who do maybe even the same thing remain well, healthy, and prosperous. It Maybe they don't get God's approval, but yet they don't get God's punishment either. But some people do get God's punishment, and it seems that the punishment they receive is harsher than the punishment that others receive for the same or a lesser offense. For example, Michael, the wife of David, in 2 Samuel 6, when David brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he's dancing before the Ark and you know, very expressive in his worship, she criticizes him and says that what he's doing is very unbecoming of a king. And because of her cynical attitude and her critical heart, she then is barren for the rest of her life. Another example could be in 2 Samuel 7, or sorry, 2 Samuel 6, same chapter, there's a man named Uzzah, and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, and rather than doing it the way that the law said it was to be done on the shoulders of Levites, David had come up with this idea that why don't we bring it on a cart pulled by oxen, that'll be much more efficient. So as they're doing that, the cart hits a rut in the road, the Ark of the Covenant you know, jostles and is about to fall to the ground. And this man named Uzzah, whose name means strong, he reaches out and grabs the ark to prevent it from falling onto the ground. But as a result of him, you know, reaching out and touching the ark, which was something he was not allowed to do, uh, he wasn't qualified to, to touch the ark, and he knew that, and yet he was killed right there on the spot. When it seems like maybe what he was trying to do wasn't a, a bad motivation. It was just he was trying to help, and yet he ends up dying for this this thing, which seems maybe like even a minor offense. Another example would be in First Kings chapter thirteen, where we read the story of two prophets, and one of the prophets was told by God not to enter into anyone's house on his journey through this land, which had a lot of corruption and, and paganism. So this other prophet knows that God told the first prophet, not to enter into anyone's house. So he essentially talks him into coming into his house by telling him, hey, I'm a prophet too. You should come in here. Um, You know, God won't be upset and you eat with me and drink. So the first prophet does that. He gives in to this other prophet's invitation to come in and eat at his house. And as a result of that, he ends up dying because he disobeyed the instructions that God gave him, which he knew were the instructions, and yet he was kind of talked into by this other prophet uh, doing what God had told him not to do. And it just seems that on the one hand, you have people doing things like this, where it's like, well, you know, couldn't God have just overlooked that, or couldn't it be a slap on the wrist, and yet God kills them? Or, Or in Michael's case, right, God causes her to be barren for the rest of her life. And my answer to you would be this, that this is a question that a lot of the Bible deals with. I could give you one more example that you didn't mention in your question. That's the example of Ananias and Sapphira. You might remember that many people in the Bible lie, even some of the people of God, like David, at some points in his life, he lies. And and he doesn't die. And yet Ananias and Sapphira, they lie to the church and to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and they're killed right there on the spot. So to your point that, yes, there sometimes seem to be these times in the Bible 
and perhaps we could even say in our lives too, where it seems that God judges some people more harshly than others. Why is that? You know, is God unfair in doing this? Is, you know, does he have no standard by which he, you know, judges some people? Or does it just depend on how he, you know, which side of the bed he woke up on, how he's feeling that particular day? Well, I will tell you this, that David also asked the same question in the Psalms. He asked the question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And that wasn't just an abstract question that David was asking. This is something that he was experiencing in his own life. There was Saul, the king of Israel, who was an ungodly person who disobeyed God, and he was currently trying to kill David, who was God's anointed and the one who was the man after God's own heart. And here's David trying to do everything that God wants him to do, trying to please the Lord, And as a result, he has nothing but hardship in his life. He's traveling, living in caves, uh, running for his life. And David asks, how is this fair, that the the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And I think this is the same sort of question. Why why does God judge some people and not judge other people uh, in the Bible and in in life? Why do some people uh, who do bad things prosper, whereas others succeed because of the bad things that they do? Um, Here's three things that I would bring to your mind to help you think through this question. The first one is this. It's the nature of mercy. Remember this, that mercy is something which can never be expected, assumed. It is never a given. Let's remember what the definition of justice and mercy are. Justice means giving someone exactly what they deserve, for better or for worse. You know, if you earn a wage, justice is giving the person the wage which they have earned. If a per, if Uh, A person has committed an offense or a crime. Justice is giving them the due punishment for what they have done. Now, mercy, on the other hand, is not giving someone the judgment that they deserve for the wrong things that they have done. And God makes it very clear that whereas justice must be done, mercy is something which is not always given. It's not a Uh, something that can be expected or assumed ever. It is completely God's prerogative uh, who he decides to give mercy to. And he says this in Romans chapter 9, but it's, it's a quote there in Romans chapter 9 from the book of Exodus, where it says that God gives mercy, shows mercy to whomever he chooses. In other words, it's God's prerogative to show mercy when and where and to whom he chooses. And it's not something that can ever be demanded, assumed, or expected. That's the nature of justice and the nature of mercy. God has an obligation to do justice, but he doesn't have an obligation to do mercy, at least not in individual situations like that. Okay, the second thing I would bring to your mind is this, that in these cases that you brought up, And I would say there are probably more in the Bible that we could look at, but I would say that in many of these cases where it seems that there's an outsized or, you know, extra judgment given in a particular case, the reason for that is because it was to set a precedent and to get people's attention. It was an example of God not giving mercy or not being long-suffering in that case because he wanted people to take notice and he wanted to make a point. And that is God's prerogative. As the author of life and as the sustainer of life, he absolutely has the prerogative to say, for example, that one person's womb will be closed and others will be opened, that one person's life will continue and another's will not continue. 
And so, for example, in the case of Michael, with her barrenness, the, the issue there was to show a lesson, not just to Michael, but to anyone else who was paying attention, including to us, that this is what a cynical attitude leads to. It leads to barrenness of the spirit. Uh, with Uzzah, you know, again, it's the idea that Uzzah acted in a way that he himself knew was not allowed. It was improper. It was against uh, what God had said. And he reached out and touched it, and God wanted people to see this, that, okay, hey, hang on a second. There are standards. Even if you do something with uh, pure intentions, it's still possible to do something wrong and be sincerely wrong, and there are still consequences for doing that. With the two prophets, I would say the same thing, that this prophet knew that what he was doing was what God had told him not to do, and yet he did it anyway. And the point there was just to say that with God, there are there is a standard and there is judgment, there's justice. God is obligated to do justice, but he's not obligated to show mercy. And that brings me to my third point, which is this, that in the life of believers in particular, but also not limited only to believers, God often uses hardships to accomplish very good things. And, and this is said to us so many times throughout the Bible, um, and I'll, I'll read you some of those quotes here in just a second, but let me just bring up this point that, think about this, going back to David, saying, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? Why is it that King Saul, this unrighteous man who does not have a heart for God, is living in a palace, being served by servants, and I, the Lord's anointed, who do have a heart for God, am living in a cave out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, hiding and being chased around by a military. And you can read about this. One of my favorite chapters to read about this is in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where it says that David departed and escaped, and he lived in this cave called Adullam. Here's what's so interesting about that. While Saul is living in this palace, we know that he's tortured spiritually, and he's tortured psychologically. At the same time, we know that while David is living in this cave, he ends up starting out in a very dark and depressed place. We know that from the Psalms that he wrote during this time. But he ends up, this ends up becoming one of the most vibrant and beautiful, strong periods in David's life from a spiritual perspective, from the perspective of his walk with the Lord and his general well-being. For example, there it says that there at the cave of Adullam, David is reunited with his family. You might remember from previous chapters that in, in 1 Samuel that David had a really rocky relationship with his family. His father um, didn't value him very much. We know that from when the apostle, or sorry, from the prophet Samuel appeared at their house and was looking at the sons to see which of them the Lord was going to anoint as the next king of Israel. We also know that David didn't have a lot of respect from his brothers. We know that from the interactions there on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17, when David went out to fight Goliath. And so we see that God does a work of restoration through this difficult period in his life with David and his family. But maybe more important is what it says in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 22, where it says that David was there in this cave of Adullam. We know it was a very dark and difficult time for him based on the Psalms he wrote during this time. But it says this, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter of soul, 
they gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now, who are these men? Well, they're obviously like the outcasts of society. They're people who can't manage their own money. They're people who are depressed. They're not doing well in life. And these people, 400 of them, come out to David. You might have been thinking, you know, David probably wanted, he probably hoped that he would have fellowship with like some great spiritually strong people who could strengthen him. But instead, God sent David people who themselves needed encouragement, needed direction, needed a leader, and needed strength. And God called David to be that person for them. And as David led these men, you know who many of them become? They end up becoming David's mighty men, the mighty men of valor, who it says in First Chronicles were full of the Spirit of God, and it says that they were masters with the sword and the shield. That's not how they started, but that's how, who they became. And during this time, David, in this brief few verses there in the first five verses of 1 Samuel 22, he goes from talking about the cave of Adullam as a dark and difficult place, and he goes to the point where he now begins to speak of it as the stronghold of Adullam. And there he's got these men, and they're no longer losers. They're now people whom he's helping to shape and form into men of God who love God and who do courageous acts in God's name and do righteousness and, and justice. And he does all this, and this ends up being one of the most vibrant, beautiful, strong times in his life from a spiritual perspective and in his relationship with God and his general well-being. Now contrast that with later on in his life when David is experiencing uh, all of the comforts of being king. He's now living in a palace, no longer in a cave. He now has servants waiting on him. He can have anything he wants at his whim. And what does he do during that time? It says there in 2 Samuel that at the time of year when kings go out to battle, David stayed home. And it was during that time that he commits sin with Bathsheba. He lives in a really, really dark place until he's finally confronted and he finally confesses his sin. He commits murder, breaks, you know, it's been said that he broke nearly all, if not all, of the Ten Commandments during that time. It's just a very, very dark place. He writes about it in the Psalms. You know, he says, my bones were, were drying up inside of me, and um, I just, you know, he feels like he was dead inside. Now, just to say, that was a dark and difficult time in his life. Now, you contrast that at a time when his circumstances were better, and you might say with David, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer which is what David himself asked, and yet we see that God used that period of suffering in David's life to do beautiful things that were, were really good. And so this is why it says in, in the letter, to James, letter of James, right? He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then he talks about other things that testing does. Romans 5, Paul says the same thing. He says, we rejoice not only in the grace of God and the hope of the gospel, but we also rejoice in the sufferings that we face because we know that God uses them in our lives to accomplish great and beautiful things. And so those would be my reasons for you. Why does God sometimes seem to uh, judge some people more harshly than others? Again, the answer would be, that uh, mercy is never a given. It cannot be expected or assumed. God is obligated to do justice, but he's not obligated to do mercy. It's his prerogative. 
The next answer being that God was in these many of these cases using these situations in order to set a precedent or make an example. And the third reason being that God knows why he uses hardships. And again, this isn't just in the life of the believer. God also uses hardships in the lives of those who do not yet know him in order to bring them to relationship with him. You could think of Paul or Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And you remember what God said to him. You know, Saul, isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? Isn't it hard for you to resist what God is doing? Isn't, aren't you miserable, Saul, is what God was asking him. And so many times I think that God will allow hardships into people's lives, and those might appear as, as a harshness on God's part, but the purpose with it is that uh, his work would be accomplished for his glory. So I hope that answers your question. Thanks for listening. I'd love it if you haven't done so yet, if you would subscribe to this podcast. And in whatever platform you're listening on, could you go in there and give us a review? Give us preferably a five-star review. I'd love that. You know, Just uh, boost this in the algorithms by doing that, giving it a review. And especially if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, go ahead and write a written review, even just a sentence about uh, the podcast that promotes it to others. And that really helps boost us in the algorithms there, helps other people discover this content. And if you haven't done so yet, make sure to visit my website, nickkd.org. That's the Theology for the People blog site where I post other articles uh, in written form. And you can also subscribe to that and have that delivered to your inbox directly whenever I post something new. God bless you and thanks for listening.